show is sponsored by Hive Mind CRM. It is more than just a CRM. It is a real estate and business mastermind that comes with an all-in-one CRM. You can have unlimited websites and users. You can call, text, RVM, and email all-in-one user interface. And you can set up custom automations for any type and multiple businesses. 65% of companies start using a CRM system within the first five years of business. Once implemented, the HiveMind will save you on marketing, give you more time, and make more money. One of our users has had his first $100,000 month using our system in June. We want to see you automate and accelerate your business. Text us at 210-972-1842 for future meetings. And of course, to get our $1 course on how to make more than six figures on one land deal. You can schedule your free demo today at hivemindcrm.io. Welcome, welcome, welcome to today's show. We have a special guest, Logan Fulmer. A little quick uh, intro to Logan Fulmer. He does over 200 transactions annually, and uh, he has set to close $7.5 million in deals this month. So he's doing some crazy, crazy numbers and some crazy, crazy business. So if you guys have any questions, this is live right now, and uh, we're going to bring up some questions later on. But I just want to do a brief introduction on Logan Fulmer. We here I have her today, Anthony Gona and Logan Fulmer today. So um, one of the first things I love asking when we do this interviews is how did you end up in real estate? Because I know you're pre your oil field. So like yep. how did you end up in real estate? We don't want to go too deep into it, but that's always a good <laughs> question. Well, so my mom was a realtor when I was growing up. Uh, and my dad was a CPA, so I you know, he'd always talk to me about finances, about people making money. And my mom's always talking about real estate. So it was kind of neat. The money stuff and the real estate, they're all there in the household. Made sense to me. That's how people make money. So I got in the oil business and I was working and saving and started buying a little piece of real estate. I thought, man, I'm going to go for broke here. And, you know, didn't go broke. When did you start real estate, though? So I've been in about 10 years. So 2012 is when I really started getting into it. I got a couple of rent houses at that time. I did a couple of flips. Um, I realized I didn't actually no. I did the flips first. I did a couple of flips on my brother and we did good. We met, bought a $50,000 house or no, let's see. We paid like 35,000, put 15 in repairs and sold it by 70 grand. We made like 20 grand on this long time ago. We did another one. We did okay. After we did a couple of them, we did all right, but we just, we realized we were undercapitalized, man. And we didn't have a ton of experience either. I was like nervous. We needed more money to do these deals, in our opinion, at that point. So then I went to the oil field um, and that's where I made the money. Mm-hmm. And I started kind of easing back into it. That's cool, man. I didn't know that you that you were actually in real estate before you went to the oil field. I never knew that. I mean, like three or four houses. If that counts as in real estate, that counts. So my dad got sick. I was living with him, trying to take care of him and help him and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's do these deals. And 
it was a try. I don't know that I'd say I was in real estate. I did a couple. Yeah. It counts better better than uh, in my book. I have that construction background with like zero real estate. <laughs> so yeah, I'm still the new kid still looking around like what the hell's going on here? Right. Dude. Right, so yeah. if anybody doesn't know, um, I did my very first deal with Logan uh, and Ryan. I just uh, posted online and I posted in Roughneck to Real Estate. Shout out to Corey, Roughneck Group. And uh, yeah. Ryan's like, hey, uh, I want to buy that deal that you posted in that group. Can you go back and delete it? And I'm like, huh? Okay, whatever. I'm brand new. Month in. I'm like, all right. Delete the sucker. The guy said he's going to buy it. I believe him. So, uh, yeah, uh, I've learned a lot from you guys, obviously. Um, lots of trust there. Uh, usually, like, anything they tell me to do, I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. It served me well. So, uh, yeah, Logan has a good name in the game. Um, so, yeah, man, we're excited to do this interview. So, Tell us, how do you go from, uh, I guess, just easing back into closing $7 million in a month? Like, what does that look like? What's the transition? Like, uh, you know, see if we can fast forward a little bit to kind of get to the meat and potatoes of it. <laughs> man, <laughs> yeah, it's a, so it's interesting, man. I've thought about this a little bit more um, in the last couple of years because the way I've been running this business has just looked different. So I got to think of consistent themes kind of that remain throughout this process. And I was always looking for a little bit better deal, a little bit smarter way to do business, a little way, a way to get a little bit better return on the investment and always had the constraints of what the capital that I had or the knowledge I had at the time. So all of the time capital would expand because I'd heavily reinvest or save and knowledge would expand just so as each of those expanded, we just kept stretching and stretching right at the edge of where those were. You know, so it started out really buying some uh, vacant land on the east side of San Antonio and then I started buying some foreclosures. Those were great. Um, you could buy them, either do a remodel and sell it, or you could literally, there are a lot of times I bought it, just put a for sale sign in the yard the next day and sold them and made good money without doing construction. Sometimes they can change the locks, dude. It's nuts. Yeah. So I like those deals. Um, but from there, it started to get harder because you couldn't get the foreclosure deals anymore. So I'm thinking, dude, what do I do now? I need a better, I still need to find good deals. And I'd done a couple that were trouble deals, just had lots of owners, title problems, just code liens, all kinds of crap. And I, and I remember looking back at the end of, I think it was 2017, maybe the market started to get a little bit hotter at this point. I was looking at it saying, God, where did I get my best deals? And I remember looking at the ones that were all complete messes. And I remember those all had the biggest spread. So I thought, okay, I think we should try to focus on these. And at that point I started telling people, I want the messy ones. I want the troubled ones. I want the hard ones. And I started marketing for those. The ones that are really behind on taxes, the ones that had Liz Pendences filed and the land records, lots of like erroneous documents. You see all these messes and say, let's go after that one. From there, it started to grow. You know, I would do it because a lot of times you have to buy these cash. You can't use any lending because you can't get a title insurance policy because they're title problems. Mm -hmm. So I'd buy cash, a $50,000 lot, $80,000 house, lower price stuff. And as I started to learn how to resolve those, I started to get a little more confidence because you're going to rip this check and hope you're going to fix it. And when I finally get to this point where I realized we're fixing 98% of them. Every once in a while we run into a problem where we really don't think we can fix it or it's not worth fixing. Most times it's working to start it up in the ante. $200,000 mm -hmm. deal, $300,000 deal, million dollar deal. I have the biggest one right now I have is 3.2 million. Wow. Nice, dude. Are these all, uh, are you still, even if you move into these larger ranks, are you still following problems, uh, properties or, or are you just now starting to go into more like any route? No, they, they all still have problems. They're just different problems. You know, one of them had a, a terrible tenant. The owner of the property had sold the business to the business that was in that 
property, he sold the business to another operator and the new operator was running his business in there and he was paying rent. The tenant was screwing up. He'd gotten behind. And then the guy that owned the real estate had started having problems in his personal life. He was personally behind on his taxes. The tenant wasn't paying him, so he couldn't pay his bills and he didn't resolve it quickly. So it started nice. to get deeper and deeper and deeper. But when you got a tenant in there, you don't just say, get out. You have to sue the people in a commercial situation. Usually they don't leave. Mm -hmm. And these people had tons of plant um, equipment, tons of inventory. I mean, you ain't just moving out like an overnight deal. I mean, you're, this <laughs> to move this business was about a $70,000 move. Wow. And these dudes are already behind on their $23,000 rent. So they ain't getting out by Friday. <laughs> 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 so the dude just wanted to just tuck toe and run, like to just avoid having to deal with all that. Right. And I'd been working on this dude for two years. Finally, mm -hmm. he gave in. He beat me up on the sales price a little bit, but it was still well within the range. So I closed on it and I basically just let this tenant keep failing and keep failing. And when they got far enough behind, that's when I started to do the uh, lockout deal and then start sending them notices. Mm -hmm. So it took nine months on that one. You had to really Ooh, wow. get really out. But the issue is you, know, you got to watch out because if you sue them while you're doing this, I planned on selling the real estate. I didn't plan to keep it anyway. I got a great deal on it. I'm going to sell it, make good money. So the whole time they had, they finally hired an attorney. And I thought if I sue these guys, they're going to file Liz penance against the property. Although they shouldn't, they'll still do it. And the judge will let it stay. And the property's locked up. I can't go sell it and get my real money while I'm fighting mm -hmm. with them over the hundred grand in rent and taxes they owe me. And the, and the so money I make on the building, yeah. I let the idiots leave without suing them at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I helped them pack up. They packed up quite a bit of it. I got guys out there hauling the rest of their crap out right now. I'm paying for it, but I'm running a tab. I got mm -hmm. a buyer for the building. It's in contract to sell right now. Once they close on it and buy it, then I'm going to sue the tenant. So it'll be six, it'll be two months, three months after they finish moving out. So they'll get hit later. But I got to dispose of the real estate so they can't lock up my sale. Oh, ah, wow. Smart, man. Yeah, I didn't even know you can so even do that. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that kind of stuff can happen on real estate, commercial stuff, bigger stuff. It can happen on ranches. It can happen on mineral rights. It can happen on any of that. Big, big and small. It's just the bigger ones are more expensive and more risk. And they usually move slower. So you really got to be, you know, work your way up to it. <laughs> that is that's crazy that is awesome dude i think anybody that knows you or has known you long enough knows that uh you spend a, a little bit of time in court you want to kind of go into that and tell us what that looks like like on the on the purchase side or the sell side like things you should probably avoid look out for uh like places where you've got stuck before yeah i mean you know it's it's a it's a the strategy is there is designed to resolve a problem. If you can't get that problem fixed negotiating, you're going to end up having to get in front of a judge. And there's always a solve there. There really is. The tough part is fact patterns are never what folks think they are. So you really got to understand what you're getting into and understand the risk. Even when you're right and you 99% think you're right and your attorney tells you you're perfectly right in all this, that doesn't mean the litigation is going to shake out the way you want. There might be all kinds of facts that you didn't know, didn't understand, and you wind up making mistakes or have made mistakes in the process. So just because you started this whole fight doesn't mean you're always going to win it. Now, mm -hmm. if you're measuring your risk and you're really careful and you have good advice along the way, nine out of 10 times, you should prevail, especially mm -hmm. if it's, if it's a business purpose, 
you know, it's not just you're angry at a business partner and you're going to sue because you're an asshole kind of thing. And you want to get, and if it's, if it's pride and ego related, you're going to get in real trouble. If it's a business case, you got better odds because you're measuring your risk. Um, but most of the time when there's a big problem, 80% and 90% of the time or higher, we get it resolved by just negotiating with people and not being knuckleheads. But you've been on a deal with this where you saw us have to go a long way um, on several crazy people. One of the two of the prior owners, <laughs> God, that thing took a year and a half. I, I think we did a lawsuit. I can't remember. I know we did an eviction. We had a lot of slow play in there. Sometimes you really want to speed up, put the gas on there, put the heat on everybody. And sometimes you want to roll slow. So if you're really trying to put the heat on, even if you don't know if the lawsuit's going to go all the way, sometimes you still want to file it and get it going because that lets people know you're serious. Everybody comes to the table with their evidence and their ask, and you really start negotiating hard. Or you litigate a little bit, get some of the facts out, and then see, all right, how does your claim stack up next to mine? Now let's negotiate yeah. knowing with what we know because one person's going to have a little more leverage. Sometimes that's the right answer. Or sometimes it's just rolling slow. Yeah, man, that one was nice. That one was on the back burner for a while. Well, not in the back burner, but it took a little while, right? Somebody almost got hit with a bow and arrow on that one, didn't they? <laughs> Somebody got assault charges that was in the property. Yeah, man, there was those guys were making drugs, using drugs, uh, wanting to kill each other. That shit was nuts. There was a gun involved, a crossbow. <laughs> That's right. But, and you, know, I say that, quick. you know, I find like some real estate investors want things quick, easy, and cheap. All these deals are slow, hard, and expensive to resolve. Mm -hmm. But when it's done, you get a fair deal. We all, we JV'd, if you remember, we JV'd with the current owner of that one to help clear up the claim, title claim, mm -hmm. the cloud on the title. We JV'd with him. We paid him a split. You brought us the deal. You got a split. And then we got a split for making the deal work. And I think we all walked away feeling good about what we got out of it based on what we've all brought to the table. Heck yeah. No, that was awesome, man. So are you still like uh, publicly pushing for these types of deals now? Or are you, are you going a different route? Or what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I do talk about it. And we get a lot of referrals from that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And we're still looking for stuff with issues. You know, we've just gotten better at sizing up the problems and and being able to ascertain. We think this is one that's more solvable or not because we've just mm -hmm. been through so many now. But I, yeah, yeah, I'm still talking about it. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, because I didn't want to push more stuff like that your way if you weren't looking for it. Because I know some of those get bloody. But yeah, I'm mean, like, I'm I'm probably your best uh, like eyewitness because every time I see something that looks messy, I don't even slow down, man. Like I kind of know what to do on a lot of this stuff. But I just push yeah. it straight to you guys. I'm like, yeah, hey, you can have it. You guys figure it out. Just give me whatever you think. It's kind of funny, too, because on our very first deal, um, I remember you guys asking me that, like, hey, what do you need to make on this? And I'm like, just give me whatever, whatever you think, whatever's yeah, fair. Yeah. And then still to this day, when I send you guys something, I'm like, I don't know, just whatever. I just know you guys are going to take care of me because <laughs> I guess yeah. you can measure like you can measure how big the problem is going to be. And, and I'm, I can't. And it's easier for me to just throw it to you guys and just keep on moving. So. Yeah, it's pretty awesome to have a connection like that. Yeah, man, absolutely. That's so uh, one thing we kind of mentioned before this is now you're kind of like a manager. Now you've kind of built out your teams and you made a post today that you're looking for a hot new hire. How big has your team gotten and how has expanding past like the real estate business? Because now you're not actually in the day to day. You have yeah. people for that. But how is it? How does it um, positioning yourself onto that manager position? Um, well, the, my office includes about 15 people now. 
Um, we got a couple partners here, and then we've got some administrative. We got some lead gen and some dispo folks, and then some uh, transaction transactional folks that are dealing with contracts, dealing with title a lot. Whether it be an asset we're purchasing and reselling, whether it be something we're buying to keep, whether it be in the wholesaling business, so it's about 15 of us. That's about as big as this organization really needs to get. I don't know that we're really going to need a whole ton more people, a few more acquisition people, but I think we've built out enough infrastructure that we can do a lot more deals than we're doing. Um, at this point, it's just knowledge and capital. And I think that's our growth pattern, really. We really have the people we need. I don't know if we even need more. So that's neat. That's good to know. And it, in the last I don't know, six or eight months, we've really been working on just strategy, where deals are coming from, what we're doing with them, capital management plan. You got to have a lot of runway. Like we were talking earlier, we really have to plan how this is going to work. Because if you're going to lock up capital for a month, it's not that bad. If you're going to lock it up for six months or 12 months or intermittent times, you really have to have a kind of a waterfall plan of when you're spending this and when it's coming back in to make sure that it balances. Otherwise, you'll get stuck in a cash flow crunch. And any growing business has to think about these things. Some folks that are leveled, they don't because they're kind of expected and consistent and all that. But if you're trying to grow, you better. So that's that's important. That's what we've been working on a lot there. Um, in terms of the management stuff, you got to think of different things. You know, I'm really trying to look at some of the other partners I've got and some of the other businesses we have, and say how can I affect them to help them be successful. Sometimes it talks it's talking about their own personal finances. Sometimes it talks about how they're managing their day to day, and sometimes it talks about you know what kind of training they're giving the folks in their company. It's a whole different whole different look or. I mean, I've been spending a lot of time working on this new office plan. We bought an office, got a bunch of tenants in there. We're remodeling it, stuff like that. You know, that takes a ton of work, but it's preparing another 5,000 square foot for my people to get into in January. You know, that's stuff I got to do while they're doing what they're doing. So that's kind of my contribution to help putting, you know, the feet under them. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you got to be the legs for a lot of people, that's where things get heavy. Right. Or maybe another thing you don't think of. So in the last two years, we started using a little bit more uh, credit lines with banks. Um, after we built some some time and some growing concern and some financials, the banks around and said, hey, we'll offer you a fair amount of credit lines. So it's nice because we've got our resources and then we've got some extra there with with uh, the local lenders. But what that requires is financials that have to be produced on a regular basis. They have to be clean. you got to take a minute and explain because our business is changing so rapidly this financial relative to uh, six months ago might look radically different. So I got to go in there, explain why, keep them up to date and keep them comfortable that these credit lines that I've extended to us are still safe. And what we're doing with their money is still what they want us or feel good about doing. So that stuff is happening while somebody's over here in the field cutting a deal with somebody right now. I'm doing that to make sure they got capital behind them when they ink that contract. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, got to be able to put the deal together whenever you need that capital available. Are you finding like more successful using like local banks or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you try to go to like a Wells Fargo or a Chase or something, you know, those guys aren't really taken for businesses that you would call us. We would be still a small business relative to some, you know, two hundred million dollar, you know, credit facility type deal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, when you go to those kind of guys, they want a different a different level of financial. And, the, you know, a lot of small to mid-sized businesses don't have that. 
but a lot of the local lenders will do it. You know, they've got certain size clients that they like. You might have a local bank that only has 100 million in capital total and you want $2 million credit line. Well, that's 2% of their total available credit. Mm -hmm. So you can do that and that's not bad for them. But when you go to also getting those kind of credit lines available is a whole heck of a lot easier with a local bank than it is with like a Chase, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't, those are tough to deal with. So how does somebody establish a, a relationship with a, a, a local bank like that? Do, do you have to just go in there and just, is it applying for a credit line? Um, based on your financials, you start with it like a, a, a credit card or how do you even start a relationship with a bank like that? You know, we started with accounts there mm -hmm. and we operated for a couple of years and they could see our accounts. We'd use them, we'd grow them. There are lots of deposits um, and the accounts were getting better and better. And of course, then we had financials that started to look better. So after a couple of years, we started having conversations with the guys that were running that branch uh, on top of their credit, uh, commercial credit department. And we'd say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what our books look like. Just start opening up conversations with them and telling them, look, we're interested in commercial credit with you all in the near term. And we started out with something tiny, relatively tiny, 100 grand, mm -hmm. not a ton. We had 30 people personally guarantee it. And everybody had good financials. So they were thinking of these three, if they default, one of these boneheads can get the money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Neat thing is we always had some real estate. We have not had to pledge the real estate um, because they believe that we could make good on that debt with or without collateral. Mm -hmm. So we started there and then you operate for a year and you draw the credit line, we'd use it and we pay it back quickly. And we'd use it, extend it for a month, six weeks, pay it back, boom. So we were always taking it out, putting it back, but we were making sure to get that thing satisfied. So they would see we're good stewards of that debt. If you were to get that, maybe they, you get that credit facility, all of a sudden you draw out the hundred grand instantly. You don't pay it back for nine months. They're happy to get their interest, but they're looking at like, damn, what do you do with this money? Is he using this to pay the bills? Like why isn't he cycling it? Yeah. So we'd be healthy users of it. And then after six months or a year, we'd come back and say, hey, you want to up it a little bit? And we just kind of slowly work it up that way. Wow. What type of interest rates are they giving you in general when you first start off? So, so that's the cool part. The interest rate, it's either you're credit worthy or not. It wasn't like they're going to give you the credit line, but it's a higher rate. So for us, yeah. we started at, so this was 2018. We started at 6% was our first one. Um, and then it went down to four. And then as low as it was a year ago, it was at 3.3. Wow. So that's a neat that's the neat thing about using these kind of banks with a credit worthy person or business. Dude, your interest rates are not much above prime, just a hair. Bank keeps a little difference and that's it. Relative to like a private money lender who wants eight, 10, 12 percent plus points, dude. So if, if you're gonna have a three percent credit line, let's say it's just a hundred grand for easy numbers, three thousand dollars a year. That's three hundred dollars a month for a hundred grand. That's free. <laughs> So the rates have gone up now since we started to get these interest rates. I think I'm pushed. I think I'm at 5% now is what it is because our rates are climbing right now. Oh, man, that's terrible. It's a big difference, but relative, <laughs> it doesn't matter. No, uh, me, me and Andy talk about that, too, is this, the, the cycle of money. If you, can, if you can continuously give a return on money, it doesn't matter what type of ask they're doing it, but the money just gets cheaper when you can return that money no matter what. Yeah, it's it's always been like this. The people that need the money the least get it the most and at the best rates. It's very low risk. Yeah, I just recently heard that phrase. It's when you need the money, nobody wants to give it to you. When you don't need it, everybody wants to give it to you.
<laughs> yeah, they, they know you're going to pay it back. So, but I, I've encouraged a lot of folks, you know, there are some guys that have built a huge business around private capital. And I don't think it's a bad way to go. It's fast and easy relative to the bank. The bank is slow and troublesome and you have to jump through a lot of hoops. But when it's done, man, it's, it's very low cost and it's relatively easy once you're up and running. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Man. Well, I think we should change gears now, right? Didn't we come together here today to talk about leads? Yeah, let's talk about yes. leads. There you go. Yes. <laughs> so, um, what, is, what is what is your lead source for troubled troubled leads? Because I've I've heard this before, but I think now you're kind of doing a little bit of variety of different types of leads. So, what what's your main mm-hmm. source of leads now? So there are two sections. I guess I'll I'll break the business into two. We've got our wholesaling business. Um, and then we have our business where we're buying assets. Maybe they're going to be rentals. Maybe they're going to be just flips. We resell them, something like that, but something we're intending on buying. Um, and those still are non-owner occupants and delinquent on tax. If they're out of town, like out of state owners, they're usually better. But those are the three best items I can find for your best deal. They don't care. They don't live there. They're already behind a little bit. It's not like they got to move out of the place. All they got to do is just sign a contract and it's easy. So those are some of my favorites. We pull that, we'll pull that from the tax authority. And for like 200 bucks, you can get you the entire Excel list. Yeah, I think we pulled it a couple of times. It's a, that's a pretty big file to mess with by the time you go through there and clean all that stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the neat thing yeah. is cheap. So you can... You know, we started out doing that stuff just in Bear County. Those were easy. You know, now we're at the point where we just recently for the wholesaling business pulled a lead list that includes. So, golly, how to, basically we took I-35 from Oklahoma to Mexico and we drew 60 miles west, 60 miles east. So it's 120 mile, mile wide band from Oklahoma to Mexico. Every county that was in that band, we put them on the list. And we purchased a huge custom data set. And that's the that's the data set that we're using for the wholesaling business. So we'll peel out about 100,000 leads of that per month and send it through the cold callers. And then they'll cycle that 100,000 leads all month. The next month, we'll pull another 100,000 out of that list. That should be enough leads, that whole data set for 12 months. Yeah, Lee. What was the total number on that pool? Do you know? No, I don't know. It was so it was filtered. We included certain sizes of ranch land and multifamily. Mm-hmm. It was like o- over two units, less than 40 units, I think is what it was, somewhere in that range. I remember we had some trouble picking certain ranges. So there were some counties that we could just get multifamily. And there's going to be stuff that's outside of our range. When you're casting this wide of a net, you know, you don't want your filter to be too tight. Yeah. Well, that's so that, man. That's so incredible. by me telling you that, that tells you that we're doing a fair amount of the multifamily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's how those lead will come in very, very raw. So we'll get that and filtration is pretty slim, but when they go in the cold callers, cold callers will call through those leads and their job is not to get a bunch of good information. Their job is, do you want to sell yes or no? And if mm-hmm. they say anything other than no, that's a warm lead we send in through the CRM from the cold caller star actual office with live in-person acquisitions folks. Bring in the pros no matter what. 
Right. If they say maybe, I'm thinking about it, heck yes, anything other than no comes into us. So that's where we take that prospect and turn it into a warm. And that's when we qualify to a warm lead. So now it's a warm lead. Now it's in our CRM. So that's when we have an acquisition person, one of the four in there. Well, now I'll call him. Hey, you just talked to John. He said you might have some interest in selling that sixplex in New Braunfels. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And they're trying to get the close. Very nice, man. That's a cool system you have. I imagine you're, you guys are coming through a lot of leads. Um, so we're starting to come across that now. You know, Hive is starting to get a, a little decent name. So people are reaching out to us uh, from all over the country and sending us stuff like, hey, I think I have a lead. Hey, I have this. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah so, so we're trying to systematize that inbound lead flow. And uh, I don't, I mean, I guess four people could probably handle it, but we're still trying to piece that together. So can you tell us what that looks like? Like handling inbound leads? Is it? Just kind of go like round robin to each person or does somebody specialize in each different type of lead? And then I think we're no. spending a lot of time underwriting or, or running comps. You know, how does that go? Is that in-house too? That's <laughs> so that was something we had head. to get over. That's, that's in-house and you've got to figure out how to do it really quickly. So some of the guys in our office, I noticed were really, really good at assessing and valuing really quickly and saying it's in the ballpark or it's not. And if it's not, move on really quickly. You know, there are some guys in the office that would spend all day looking at two or three leads and trying to, like, find every perfect comp and all these details. And there's another person that would burn through 10 or 15 of them in a day, like, boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. And I started to find the person that was burning through them quickly was getting far more contracts because they got more looks. Yeah. But mm -hmm. so there would be four cold callers and three acquisitions people on that team. So the four cold callers were generating those warm leads, getting into the acquisitions people. Those acquisitions people would look through them and basically decide to cut the deal or not so the low end is about 10 deals a month the high end is about 20 deals a month that's kind of the range that we've been falling in with the three people mm -hmm. um so that's kind of that's kind of how that shook out so each person would get three to five contracts roughly per month dang man that's that's amazing so that, that's what you guys have been running right now like 10 to 20 deals a month yeah yeah, it's it's crazy though because I've I've not yet found a way to stabilize the number to make it like mm -hmm. we're 15 15 15 15 it just doesn't work like that. I don't know why. Real estate just seems to be choppy and unless you have 60 lead gen people, you're not going to get the 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 level that when you only have 3, it's like two guys are on, one's not, your lead flows down. Or the next yeah. one all two are hitting, the third one's not, but the lead flows way up. It's and that's a big range, you know, range from 10 to 20. That's a 50% jump or 100% jump, you know, mm -hmm. that's a big swing. Yeah. Or you'll have these weird times where like a lot of deals are supposed to close in April and like half of them get pushed to May and they'll close the first week of May. So throw mm -hmm. skews the number dramatically. Yeah, we were just talking about that earlier, Daniel, myself, like it's like one month, like we're just looks like feels like we're just firing on all cylinders and everything's popping. And then one month it just goes a little quiet. So we're like, I don't know. We're, we're, I guess that's part of catching the rhythm. I don't know. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're like, did we lose it? Oh my God. It's gone away. <laughs> that, yeah. That's not an easy solve, man. There are some folks who are doing higher, lower margin and much higher volume. And for them, they seem to like that because when you get at a higher volume, it seems to be a little more consistently. It's at least 20 a month, but they're smaller spreads, you know, three, four, five grand. So if you can have a trade off, you have a lot more organizational churn. I don't really want that. I want more efficiency. Yeah. just constant churn that's that's not what i like 
I, I think I think what separates you guys too is that you're you're doing bigger deals in general. So the ten to twenty deals a month. What ten? You might do ten deals that might net five hundred grand, but you do ten deals the next month and it's a million. You know, it's the same right. same deal flow, but it, you're messing with the numbers on the skew. So I think for you it's a little different because it's the lot deal size bigger, which is good because you have people to take down any type of deal in general from any size. That's true. It's taken us longer to figure out how to, like Anthony was saying, to underwrite those. Something else I've noticed is really just now that we have enough trailing months, that business, this wholesale business started last September. It's doing really well. It's generally stabilized. Um, And what I noticed is about 50% of the revenue is coming from about 20% of the deals. Another 80% of the revenue is about 20% of the deals. So like, what that means, the average assignment fee is 15 to 17 grand for 80% of those. But the other 20% have big old honking fees. I'm talking multiples of that, big multiples of that. So there's a large chunk of revenue come from only 20% of the deals. But what I, so my, so my first response as a manager to that is, well, why don't we just do more of those bigger deals and less of the smaller ones? And we try to shift marketing a little bit that way. And we realize it doesn't work that way. You have to cast a wide net and churn through the small ones. You have to have those conversations because those big ones, you can't really focus on those because it doesn't happen that way. They happen to be in those massive lists and you're basically looking through for a needle in a haystack. And if you don't look through that haystack and find all the other, hey, you're not going to find the needle too. So you have to be doing, for us, you have to be doing the 10 to 15 deals a month to get those extra three or four that are the whoppers. Yeah, that's a good backwards. What's that? I, I was doing it backwards. I was going after these giant land deals, and uh, that's why I was only doing you know ten deals a year. And then now that we're trying to up our volume, I have the team here. We're running deals, and yeah, some of them are five thousand bucks. And I'm like, hey guys, trust me, you know the big ones are in here. And sure enough, yeah, we, you know we, we'll get the the big nice ones come across too. But you're absolutely right, man. And I'm just experiencing it now, trying to cast a wider net, and that's what's kind of we're, we're trying to catch a rhythm of trying to even all that flow out, both ingoing and outgoing. Yeah, but you, the word you're using, rhythm, I guess, is is a good one to use for that. Um, you're having to really pay attention and watch how things work, and and building the business is one thing, but but optimizing it is a whole different ball game. That, that's, yeah. that's such a good tidbit, man. It's such a good tidbit. Um, let, can we talk about your your? Um, I hate that you sold your office, but can you talk about how you found <laughs> that deal and like your your whole time for that because. I loved your office when I was there, and that was the last time I saw you in San Antonio. But yeah. can I kind of cover that deal, where you, how you found it, where you purchased yeah. price it. Like now that it's done now, because you, you've done sold it now. Well, we haven't closed. It's supposed to close in about two weeks. Oh man, okay, <laughs> yeah, we're close. Um, so Ryan and I were looking at the foreclosure list in 2018 wintertime. It was November, September, November range, and we we're looking at a particular zip code where most of the houses were selling for less than 200 grand. And we see one of them for four ninety. I'm like, dang, that's an expensive one. What the heck is it? A, is it a commercial building? Is it a big piece of land? And this was a, a smaller infill subdivision right adjoining the Pearl. And I was like, man, this is that's a strange price. So I Google the address and see this big old historic mansion. And I think, oh, what the heck? Okay, this is interesting. And I've never done one like that before. But I thought, well, how do I size this up real quick? So we drive by it. And it's just a neat thing. And I thought, man, let's 
let's call this guy. What the heck? Or actually, Ryan was the one that suggested. He goes, why don't you just call him? I was like, okay, why not? We've been looking for an office, and we thought maybe it's big enough because we were leasing an office at the time. So we meet with the owner. We walk the place. Um, and I'm saying, hey, man, you thinking about selling this? And he's like, you know, I kind of have. And in my mind, I'm like, well, you better do it before next Tuesday or the first Tuesday of next month, you know, because <laughs> that's a foreclosure. <laughs> but I never told the guy I knew he was in default and knew it was going to be sold because I knew he'd be on this. He had some money. I figured there'd be some pride and ego issues there. So I didn't talk about the foreclosure. Never to this day. So we talked. I made him an offer of uh, he uh, he owed like four thirty or four forty or something on it, and I offered him five hundred. That way, there were outstanding taxes of thirty or forty or something like that. So my estimate was, if he the loan was only two years old, which I thought was strange. So I thought if you pay off the loan, pay off the back taxes, you walk with fifty grand. Yes, sir. I know that's not really really high, but. That's the best I can do. And he says, man, I get this architect firm offering me 700. I'm like, Shit, that's a good deal. Honestly, you should take that, man. I can't do that. So he says, well, I'm going to talk to him. We'll see. Thanks for your time, whatever. I call him a week later. So this is three weeks. It's like T minus three weeks of foreclosure. So that was the first week we walked in. Second week before foreclosure, I call him. Hey, man, you get that offer from the architect firm, whatever. Nah, I'm still talking to him. I'm supposed to hear back from him this week. Week before the foreclosure, I call him and he Stops answering my calls. I'm like, oh, typical foreclosure guy. So I call the bank and say, y'all, it's a local bank. And he's like, y'all still foreclosing? They're like, oh, yeah, the dude ain't paid us yet. They're pissed. <laughs> so we go down the sale. And at that price, you know, they they listed it. The credit bid was $500,000, bucks. Or no, it was four thirty, dollars and the taxes come in tow. That's a lot of money. When you're talking about foreclosure for eighty grand, you are willing to take a risk. You're talking about almost five hundred. Not doing it. So I watched it go to the lender at the foreclosure sale for the credit bid. No one bid on it. And then I went to the bank the next day with a contract. I was like, hey, guys, here's a contract. So we cut a deal for $490. That's what I paid. He let it go to foreclosure? Yeah. So he would have walked with me with at least fifty grand. Let it go. Dude, what's the psychology behind that? I don't want to veer too off from the from the story all the way through the sale, but why right. people do that that are in foreclosure? What the hell happens in their brain? There's like, I'm gonna lose. I don't want anybody to get it, or they know they have a little bit of money coming. What the heck? It's they like uh, so there's pride and ego, I think, get in their way a lot. And also, if they concede, they almost feel like they gave in. If the, if the bank forecloses, that means you had to come and take this from me. I didn't give it back to anybody. I didn't give it to you. I didn't give it away. It's like, you're going to have to take this from me. It's a pride and ego and a frustration position. And I mean, the dude used to run an extremely successful, very big construction company. And I later found out he was an alcoholic. He got uh, into a DWI accident. And apparently his wife came to visit him in the hospital, which is where she met his girlfriend who was in an accident with him. Ooh. And the whole thing blew up. He was in the hospital. She came home, drained the accounts, closed the business. He comes out of this coma and... He doesn't have a wife anymore and he doesn't have any money and he's served with divorce papers. Yeah. Lee. Yeah. So at that point, when I hadn't closed on it, I'd gotten a chance. When I had the contract with the bank, I had a month. So I did inspections, mechanical, electrical, plumbing. I knew the roof had a little bit of trouble, not too bad, but I, didn't, I knew it was a little. Eh. So at that point, I knew what it was going to cost me. So I spent four months repairing damaged wood inside outside all this stuff 
got it all done. And then that's when we moved in to operate out of here, run it, you know, ran our business out of it. Yeah, it came out amazing, man. I, I just pull up there whenever I'm driving by with somebody like that hasn't seen it before. I'm like, I gotta show you this. <laughs> man, it, it's tough to actually let this go. I don't fall in love with real estate because to me it's a commodity. I make deals, I move on. This is one of the few places that's so special and so unique. And I'll just, you know, it's sad because I know that you don't get something like this very often. It will probably never be able to replace it in our career because we just won't stumble across it for a good deal again. Mm-hmm. But the new office I bought has 15, this is 5,500 square foot. And the new one's 15,000 square foot. So I've got a lot more room. Yeah. The location's really good. It's right there, Broadway and 410. So it's incredible location right down the street from my house, right by the airport, like killer location. A plus location, man. That's dope. It is. So it's tough to let this go, but we got something ahead. Are you still in the office right now? So I'm in the office right now. Buyer's supposed to close in a couple week or two. And then I'm actually going to lease back from them for a year. Well, not quite a year. My goal is to be done in December. I'm remodeling, gutting and remodeling a new place right now. So hopefully we should be done moving in the holidays. I saw some of those progress picks, man. That thing's coming out amazing. Yeah, thanks. That's a lot bigger project than in terms of building wise that I'm used to doing for a remodel, but it'll be worth it when we're done. And do it once so, and get it over with. What, yeah. what's, your, what's your sale price now? Because you're selling at the top of the market. Oh, on this place? Yeah. And I would like to say, but until it closes, I probably don't know that I should. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe you don't want to talk about that right this second. <laughs> but, I, but I'll tell you, I'm not taking an L. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you don't you don't lose on deals, right? <laughs> Normally, no. <laughs> but uh, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about uh, losing in real estate because you said real estate investors don't lose money, right? We're, we're, yeah. we're always on the winning side of the of the of the business. Um, let's talk about some losses. Have you had some really bad losses that you kind of faced head on that were like, yeah. 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 That one <laughs> you know, you're the first, I guess, rule or goal should be to never risk principle. So let's just say you start your business with a hundred grand, easy number, whatever. You don't ever want to risk that principle. You want to grow it. You want to invest it. You want to, you want to, grow the business, but you want to risk that initial investment. As you make more money and reinvest more, you still want to risk that investment. So when you go to invest, let's just use a flip house, for example, you're going to buy it for hundred, put some money into it and resell for 200 maybe. So if you break even, that's one thing, but if you sell it for less than you have into it, you're lo- you're risking principal, you're losing money. And that's the hard part because it, you, you have to make twice as much when you lose, you know, because you got to pay taxes on it. You got overhead, you know, and then you lose some of that. You really have to work double as hard to recoup that loss. So it's, there's so many bad, so many bad uh, cases for that, but they're about, I don't know, one, two, three, there are three times where I've lost money. One of them was on a big flip house and five years ago, I lost, never forget the number stands out. And I talk about it often, $54,000. That was a that was a whopping loss at the time, and it really hurt at the time. <laughs> so in that case, I undershot the I overshot the market, I undershot the repair costs, and I overpaid. Basically, every one of those things I was off because I was so optimistic. 
I'm going to flip a house in Alamo Heights. Everyone's going to love it. It's going to be so valuable. The market's going upwards every day. I was wrong on all accounts. And in that case, I borrowed private money. So I had to bring 54 to the closing table to, to pay off the freaking debt and interest. Ouch. Oh, man. That was tough. But what came out of that loss is it made me look at every single deal differently. And I said, I have to get better deals. I have to get the deal so good that if I overprice it, if I undervalue repairs, if I miss the market, if I do all these mistakes, I still won't lose money. So what that did is, let's say, so on that house, for example, I paid 330000 Nowadays, when I look at a deal like that, I wouldn't pay more than 150, which would leave an additional 150, $180,000 difference. That's how much more disciplined I got because I can make all those mistakes and still not lose money. And now you say, oh my God, how do you get a deal like that, right? How do you get deals like that these days? They don't exist. Well, y'all both know my volume is pretty good. So they exist. You just have to look differently for them. But if I wouldn't have had those heavy mistakes, a couple of those early on, I wouldn't have told myself, oh my gosh, I would have just be moving through doing these smaller little flips and little deals and making a couple bucks here and there. And I don't know if I would have gotten the shakeup that said, you need to look harder, dude. Yeah. So that was one of them. Um, there was another one where I, one of the lit cases we have, we made some mistakes early on and I didn't realize it. We had legal advice all the way along it, two attorneys, and we made some mistakes. We got deep in the lawsuit and the other party did a great job litigating and basically showed us our mistakes. And I knew at that point I need to cut a deal because I don't think I'm going to win a trial if this goes that far. So in that case, you know, I wrote it down and cut a deal. It cost me money. So that caused me to look at those type of cases much differently. And we do a different kind of review on them now so that I shouldn't find myself in those positions as often. Yeah. I noticed some, one thing that stands out to, to me, I've had a, probably a lot of mentors, but you know, you and Ryan being the, the, the front runners that have been there, like I said, the whole time. But I think one thing from the beginning, when I first got in, cause I am one of those like, you know, ready fire aim guys is that uh, yeah. you think, you, you think a lot of in terms of defense. And at first I was kind of a little annoyed by it. I'm like, this guy's too careful, but you know, everybody thinks <laughs> you're negative. They think you're negative Nancy. They think you're always talking shit of a deal. They're, they think it's no fun. But you know what I'm doing? I'm making sure no one loses their ass. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I have three losses. One of them I only made $1,500 on. It was a flip. I call that a loss. I worked on it for two months, invested money, and walked away with $1,500. I had a partner in the deal, so he got $750. And I got $750. I worked two months Man. for $750. That's a freaking loss to me. <laughs> yeah. But, I want my two months back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I want my two months back. You can keep the 750. <laughs> but, so, right. So, those deals cause us to look at things differently. And, and now I'm not trying, I'm never worried about the profit anymore. I'm worried about all the ways you can lose money. And if you assess a dollar amount to all those and get a subsequently equivalent discount to those potential risks, now what you have is a margin of safety. But that's also, it's a convertible profit margin. It can be a margin of safety or it can be profit, but it can convert into a margin of safety if the market starts to weaken, if you make mistakes. So let's just say you think you're going to have a $50,000 profit. I look at that as a $50,000 convertible margin of safety. I can make $50,000 worth of mistakes before I risk my principal. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sometimes people are bringing us deals. They're like, dude, 
you're like, you're looking for everything wrong with this. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing. And I know it's not fun, <laughs> but I'm making sure no one's losing their ass. No, man. Yeah, I feel it. And like I said, I, I just from being around you now for a few years, I am thinking in terms of that more because now even, you know, being in, in business with Daniel with Hivemind, I'm like, you, you got to think about this. We got to watch out about this. You got to factor for this. And he's, you know, still in the extra optimistic phase, I guess. And then I'm the one that has to be the one that says, dude, you don't know that. There's no possible way you can predict that. We need to, and then I, I kind of hear you in the back of my mind, too, you know, coming up with this stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just telling you, man, you, you have to look at the, the, the things that could go wrong. You have to and the neat part is you've had some experience now and I'm sure yeah. along the way you made some of these mistakes and you say, man, I learned from these guys cause I've watched and heard it, but I've also had a couple of mistakes. So now I can see, dude, I don't want that to happen anymore. Yeah. I think you, you got to kind of learn through some pain, right? It's like your parents tell you don't touch that hot stove and you do it anyway. Um, I've, I've been coming to find more of that in business is that like, yeah, you can, you can, they can give you all the good advice, but are you going to take it? Yes or no. Um, and right. I am, like right. I said, since I am that over-optimistic, ready-fire-aim guy, I got to kind of, you know, tame myself down and say, hey, let's take a wider look at this and make sure that we're not walking into any traps. Absolutely. And we, yeah. and we recently had one, right, Daniel? We had a pretty big, pretty big scare there for a minute. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Man, it's a long story, but uh, our payment processor was charging us incorrectly for four months. And they, once they caught it, they ran our card all in one day. So we, we, yeah, we paid uh, back payments for four months for, you know, almost 400 subscribers. So yeah, it wasn't amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Ouch. So yeah, talk about having to, to make a miracle happen in just a couple of days. But yeah, that was a, that was a, a real, you know, we were like, <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, so, I mean, you live and you learn. It's nothing that we could have uh, predicted, nothing we could have uh, foreseen, but it's, it's the thing that I've been talking to Daniel about since we started this thing is like, yeah, you got to be prepared for surprises. You know, you yeah. have to, you have to factor in the, uh, the unfactorable. Yeah. So. That's true. And you know, there's no better time to think about that than right now. You know, you've got interest rates ticking up. It seems like every month, you know, we've probably got a several point um, increase on the horizon between now and the end of the year. I've heard potentially as much as two and three points percentage points or basis points, whatever. 300 um that if that happens that's going to immediately change the market you know i've been so bold as to say if we had a if we had a single 100 basis point increase which is equivalent to one percent of interest rates i think that would almost freeze the market the capital markets would hold for just a moment and see what the heck's going on what are we going to do because that's a dramatic change you know there's biden's been issuing a bunch of stuff lately saying their intent is to get control of the inflation only thing that will do that right now is a radical dramatic action and the only tool they have left is interest rates that i know of so what what do you think needs to happen man can we get out the crystal ball right now like what should happen and then let's say you know if the things run to hell like i hate to predict the future right uh, but can yeah. you give us like what what could happen here like what's worst case scenario and then what's 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 the fix what's best case scenario I mean, I don't think anybody's smart enough to really predict what's going to happen. You know, the smartest minds on Wall Street still haven't been able to predict yeah, it with any kind talking. of consistency. So, but what but what we can say is we're far off in far along enough in a real estate cycle where it should be time for a correction. We know we're seeing a lot of inflation. We know we're see, we know we're seeing asset values and expenses run much faster than salaries are running. So you got a lot of you know you got a lot of things that are coming to a head and. 
all it takes is a special surprise over in Russia or China or wherever, or any other unknown list of things that could happen. And credit markets freeze overnight. Stock markets already damn near been a free for all for the last couple of weeks. So I mean, you just have a lot of those conditions that are happening. You say, what are we going to do? Well, somebody asked me that a couple of weeks ago and I said, I'm not going to do anything. And they said, well, why not? Because we've been cautious with our capital. We've only been buying assets that we're going to either resell or we feel good about owning if we don't resell them for the right money in the right time. Um, anytime we've been taking down stuff, we make sure that they have good cash flow. We're not buying anything that's not really a cash flow asset because in case we get stuck with it for some reason. Um, we're also buying with pretty darn good discounts. A lot of stuff we're getting between 40 and 60 cents of the dollar. So the market can fall by 30 or 40%. And I can still sell it and get my principal back. That margin of safety thing we're talking about is still really heavy. So I don't know that I change a lot. I continue to buy at the same rate. I continue to buy at the same discount. And if something dramatic happens, I can discount things and sell them and still get my principal back and still remain liquid, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what is a, a different thing at this point? For the last 10 years, all these hedge funds have been in love with single family housing after BlackRock hit their home run buying all the single family houses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wonder when we start to get some softening in markets and real estate markets and things, do we get the softening in the single family houses? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But if we do, I still think there's a ton of the investment grade buyers, not investments like flippers, but I mean, institutional grade buyers. Right now they're buying houses by the boatload. I'm talking mm -hmm. mega. So that could probably still exist because they're doubling down on single family housing. It's proven to be a really good investment over, over time. Mm -hmm. um, so my gut tells me there's still probably going to be a lot of those big fund buyers still buying single family. So I like that because that tells me, all right, great. Maybe I don't buy so many ranches. Um, if I can get a good deal in offices that have cash flow, I'll keep buying those things and kind of improving them a bit in terms of the economics and um, maybe spend more time dealing with single family stuff again, because we know how to do it so well. We can change gears and say, take that multifamily lead list out of the till and stick the single family lead list. Cause you remember I told you, I got all those leads. Let's just do a different filter and pop it in. Boom. Now we'll do single family starting next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the strategy. I haven't even talked to you about that yet, but uh, you know, I've been primarily doing land for the last three years, you know, and it's been really, really going really good for us. It's, it's like kind of that cool niche that nobody's paying too much attention to, but myself even just without even i guess thinking about it i'm i am starting to think a lot more about getting uh, uh starting to market for houses yeah so and i've always thought and i've talked to folks that were doing real estate in the last slow period mm -hmm. and they did say land was one of the first things to slow down um, we haven't seen the slowdown yet i'm just trying to gear up <laughs> well no, i agree yeah i haven't seen that either but you know so then you have this interesting thing about a lot of folks are spending a lot of money on land because land price has been running and folks are coming to Texas. So land has really got a lot of attention. So when markets slow down, do you get some softening in land pricing? Probably. Do people completely stop buying it? I don't know. Maybe the economy stays a little bit stronger in Texas. Even in our last downturn, Texas was still much more healthy than all the rest of the places. Now, granted, we still go to the foreclosure auction and get a house for 40 grand. That was pretty neat. Um, but we were far healthier than most of the other um, states. So I don't know what all that means, but I know the energy business is getting a little healthier again. And San Antonio is heavily affected by that. And so South Texas and, you know, by, by and large. So I think that helps us.
Yeah, I'm going to still keep playing the land game. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to keep closing on stuff, but uh, we're gonna. I'm going to do a bigger push for land right now, and I'm going to see what we can pull back. Because like I said, that yeah, the prices have been going nuts, man. Even these sellers are just – they're asking like – the prices they're asking are just crazy now. I mean, it's, it's getting harder and harder to find a good land deal. So, yeah, I think we, we do need a little – we deserve a little bit of softening of the prices for sure. But I'm going to keep pushing it, man. Like I said, maybe just stick to wholesaling instead of closing on land right now. I don't think it's bad. Also, too, there are times where we look at certain deals that are over my head and I say, you know what? I don't either. I'm not completely sure about this one or it would just be too stressful on our capital. So I say, hey, who do I know that's got a ton of money and understands land? There are tons of those people. So those are the times where I would get closer to calling somebody and say, hey, look, I've got the deal. Why don't you pay for it? And let's figure out a split. And I wouldn't use any of my own money. I would be flat out honest with them and explain all those things to them. If they still felt like they felt good about it, let's do a deal. Let's use your money. Mm -hmm. When you get in the higher purchase price stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're looking at that right now. Now I'm starting to have those people in the pipeline now that I can call and say, Hey, can I borrow half a million dollars? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now that you do have that superpower, now I'm trying to protect their money, you know, more being a little bit more cautious because it's somebody else's wallet too. So I'm like, now we need to buy even deeper, more carefully. Well, so I agree with that, but I also agree that you got to find somebody who might be a little bit more of a specialist that has a little, yeah. they've got maybe a, a longer trajectory for their return. They might be willing to wait longer. And in those cases, I would be real clear. I would say, look, I'm not 100% sure about some of this stuff, which is why I'm not, you know, betting my farm on this. But if they feel good about it and they understand it and they're willing to do it, I mean, I wouldn't hide any of that. I'd be very upfront. If they feel good about that, then it's okay. Well, I've got the lead, so let's make this deal work. Yeah, that's what we did. We, we got one in Denton right now for 300 and that's what I told him. I said, hey, look, it's definitely not going to lose. I said, it's a guaranteed win. Uh, worst case scenario, we just have to wait a little bit longer. That's the first thing I said before we even closed on it. So, yeah. I think a lot of that transparency is important because folks get so wrapped up in making them want to promise people a lot because they think that's required to get the money. Some folks realize it's a risk. Some folks say, I want a guaranteed return and I want zero risk. That's more of me. But some guys just say, I'm willing to take on a little bit of risk. I'm willing to see how this goes. And another thought is, let's say you buy that land for 300 grand. Think of yourself for 400 grand, maybe. Well, what's the worst case that's going to happen? They say, well, I got 300 at risk. No, you don't. Let's say you buy for 300 and you got to cut bait because you screwed up and you got to sell for 280. So yeah. you walk with 280. You don't have 300 at risk. You have 20 at risk. Yeah. You're not going to buy the land for 300 and it's going to be worth $0. Come on, man. So yeah. maybe you have half of that at risk. What's your value at risk? Maybe it's half. Yeah, that's, that's the way that's I think point. about it. And that's what I've been telling a lot of people. Yeah, is that you're definitely not going to lose, right? Because the game we've been playing and we've been doing what you've been doing, buying it deep enough to where there's enough room to have fun with everybody. But that's what I told them. Like I said, you know, you're not going to lose. 100% you're not going to lose, but you might have to wait a little bit longer or like liquidate and, 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 and get nothing back. Or another option is you say, you know what? I'm the one that brought the deal. You decided to get involved with it. We tried this. Doesn't look like there's going to be any profit. I'll let you keep whatever it is. I'll either deed my half to you or I'll just pass on any of the proceeds because we don't think we're going to make a lot of money. So I don't need to make any money on this. You're the one that risks all the cash. If we're only going to make a small amount, you just keep that. Don't worry about it. Let's go. That's fair yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah, I teed it up that way on this one too. I said, hey, if we end up having to, to get too low on our, our profit or our turnaround, I'll just take a zero, right? So I just invested some of my, my expertise and my knowledge, my time trying to market it and it didn't happen. We'll walk away and I'll get, I'll get nothing. I'm good with that too, man. 
I like to try to make sure that everybody wins. Yeah, I agree with that. I do agree with that. If you're not too greedy, you're willing to share. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can uh, kind of tell now. I'll oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Danny. I was gonna do. Uh, go ahead and ask your question. I'll go after no, you. I was gonna say I, that's kind of just how I do it. I can kind of tell if somebody's gonna be a good fit, like for a business partner with myself. If they start doing yeah. calculations and percentages before we actually have a deal on the table, I'm like, nah, forget it. This guy's getting crazy. <laughs> ah, so, yeah. yeah, you got yeah, to be willing to be flexible in this business if you want to partner with a lot of people. And I've, I've been pretty good at that. Well, I mean, that's a fair statement, actually. Um, everybody sees stuff differently. Everybody sees their deals differently. And if you're not willing to be super flexible, you're going to have a tough time making something work. Yeah, it's like because what we talked about right now is like all the variables, right? You, you can you can't foresee the future, so you say, yeah, this looks like an amazing deal, but we don't know what's going to happen on the back end. So, yeah, you got to have that that le some level of flexibility going into something with somebody else. Yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. So, uh, what is a quote that is yours or somebody else's that you resonate with? Okay, this is a quote from Gone with the Wind. Do you mean to tell me that land doesn't mean anything to you? My land is the only thing in the world worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. I thought that was a fun quote, and it was really <laughs> relevant to our business. You know, I was having a conversation with a guy the other day. He's an attorney, and I happened to bump into him at a party of a friend of mine. He recognized me or whatever. We got to talking, and he basically said he likes he likes to fight over land. He's an attorney, and that's kind of his thing. He thinks people are really passionate about it they care about it it's texas it can be really high value and he's like that's kind of what i made a career um over fighting for land and he told me that he started one of his supreme court briefs uh recently the opening of that uh pleading had that quote from gone with the wind and it was a dispute wow. over land and i thought dude that's a really interesting opener so i like that and try to set the tone of everything from the very beginning yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he, he was he was skilled, man. I was really impressed. So that was fun. Dope, man. Hey, yeah. So we usually wrap these up like right about the hour mark, man. But is there anything you want to cover or talk about right before we head out? We, we got time. You got time. I feel like we like. There's just so much. I know you have so much information inside that head of yours. I feel like we didn't <laughs> ring out enough of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what's what's relevant right now. You know, I mean, I think something that's just important for folks to be aware of and talk about right now is the market changing. You know, I think yeah. a lot of people are going to get their butts handed to them. And and I don't think we are. And I don't say that in a cocky way. But I think the reason I say that is because we're paying attention. We're preserving capital. Um, every day we're looking at what's happening. We're trying to be thoughtful, make decisions based on that. And that doesn't mean we're scared or fearful. You know, we're, we're working our way in through stuff, but we're watching and paying attention the whole way. So when things change... We've got exit strategies. We've got backup plans, and we should be able to catch it as quickly as as things start to change. We should be really, really ready for that. So mm -hmm. I, that's something I want to bring awareness to everybody. And I don't want to be. I got one guy in my office who's Mr. Negative Nancy, sending the fucking stock crap. I mean, all the negative quote uh, news articles about the stock market in the morning. And then I got one guy who's the most positive, like almost to a fault point in the world. I'm more in the middle. I'm like, yes, I know stuff's going to be crazy out there. I know things are looking kind of bad in some ways, but I'm also not going to be stupid and just blindly go one direction, kind of in the middle, and I'm watching it. And that's why I think we're going to do really well in a time like this. But a large part of people get hurt. 
they're heavily extended, they didn't plan well, or they just blindly led themselves into six deals and didn't have a backup plan or something like that. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm trying to start to talk about a little bit more. Having those types of conversations is like what's happened next because this is my first recession. I've right? never never been through one. Last time I wasn't in real estate, I was in construction. I didn't feel it. You know, I stayed busy as ever. Um, so yeah. I am trying to prepare myself and and of course our peers and friends to like what to do next. So I guess if you're doing if you're sticking a little bit closer to wholesaling, you're not quite buying on the in the buying phase of your career yet. Uh, I guess you're pretty safe in that area. Is there something that, that you would change in, in that regard? Or are you just trying to buy a little bit deeper? Or You know what I would tell people too is mm -hmm. I see a lot of folks, they leave a job, they're making 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 grand, whatever, good income. They get out here and go do a couple of flips or wholesale deals and they bring in 50, 80, 100 grand in a deal. They do that two or three times and they have an incredible year. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Good job. But that doesn't mean you're going to go reward yourself and buy that gold Rolex for 50 grand or that $100,000 sports car. Not so fast. Times are changing. That might have been great five years ago, but times are changing right now. Saving, preparing, watching out for what's coming next. But having those reserves is what's going to get folks through that. I mm -hmm. think that's what allows you to continue to build your business in a time that's uncertain. So that's something that I'm really pushing on everybody, all the partners in my office, all the people we JV with, people that I help advise, you know, kind of mentor on their businesses. I harass the heck out of them. I still barely pay myself a little bit more than my best year as an employee. That's still my salary. Mm -hmm. Everything else is being reinvested. So you have an idea of what some of our numbers look like. It's a very, very big percentage gets reinvested. That's what's allowed the growth, but also the protection. Yeah. So that's something I like to preach about. I like to remind people to be disciplined. I like to remind people that humans can justify anything. I'm going to reward myself. I've worked so hard. You've worked so hard that you want to put yourself in a riskier financial position. That doesn't add up to me. You work so hard, so you should protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm the same way, man. Like I said, I, I've, I guess I've, I've made a lot of money in my lifetime as a contractor, and uh, I did spend it all. I mean, I just spent, go out, pay for everybody. I've always been like that. And then now in business and knowing like just kind of, I guess, preparing, getting a little bit smarter, starting to buy stuff now. I'm playing a lot. of experience, a little wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see all that money, how fast it comes and goes. Like, you know what? I'm going to start hanging on to some stuff. But yeah, I think I do a lot of that. I do a lot of reinvesting. I do a lot of sidelining cash, putting stuff away. I try not to do anything fancy, like too fancy. You know, I see all these guys yeah. flashing online. I just, I can't wait to see where everything's going to be in 12 to 24 months. See how the land. You know, changes. you brought up a good point. You want to reward yourself, go get yourself a nice dinner, not a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, we do it. We do it just a fancy vacation with us. Like we'll take off to, to South Padre for a couple of weeks and, and less Disney yeah. and less, yeah, $50,000 vacations. Like I see everybody in Cabo at the beach. I'm like, I wonder if those pictures are still going to be there 18 months from now. Right. You know, one more thing I'll tell you before we get off is I've kind of stayed away from the real estate education stuff, but folks have been hammering me for years to share more. Mm -hmm. This last year, I finally decided if I can get 100, 150 people in a room, I'll do a class. You were there. It was on curative title work. That's the mm -hmm. basis for the extreme discounts that I'm getting on this real estate. It's solving some problems, breaking the title chain, several owners, um, tax, uh, tax liens, um, I just countless. You got uh, errors, um, uh, 
error, uh, God, what do you call it now? There's a word for it, but you've got a bad uh, vesting document or a bad, bad affidavit that was just erroneously created, has mistakes in it. You got to resolve um, some of those docs. You know, there's there, some of the properties landlocked or it's not landlocked, which you have to prove ingress, egress. There are countless judgments and liens. You got to strip from the property so that you can actually sell it, and make money instead of it being underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, countless lists of that kind of stuff. But I did a seven hour class. I did record it. I do have it online. Um, it's basically the equivalent of one dollar of attorney hour. It's three hundred ninety nine bucks. But it's basically seven hours of what has taken me hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and about ten years to learn. And it's the framework of resolving these assets problems to get the extreme deals i talk about the business case on how to negotiate these problems with sellers i've got a couple attorney friends that were of mine that were involved in it with me so it's a great i think it's a really good offering so i do want to bring that up i do have that you can go on my facebook there are plenty of places or i might give you guys a link if y'all can add it in here yeah heck i'm sure daniel could probably pop up that link before we get out of here man but uh what is it called where so we just do we is there a website set up for it yet or we just message you on facebook to find you and and, and request it yeah there is um education-re.com and i can send you the link i don't know can i maybe send it through this yeah daniel can post um, it up here on the chat he probably disappeared for a little bit if you give him a minute or two he'll be right back and he can post it up yeah I'll put it in the private chat up here. You want to text it to me and I'll, I'll post it inside of the private chat here and then Daniel can post it on the, uh, it'll be a link that pops up on the screen right now. Oh yeah. Okay. I can do but that. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, I, I want to reiterate, uh, I posted this on Facebook the other day. Yeah. But, uh, Logan has been in my corner, especially Ryan. I've been in communication with Ryan all the time and sometimes he's the, the intermediary between the two of us, but yeah. these two gentlemen have, they've walked me through, like I said, since my very first deal, I just text Ryan today asking him for help today. I had some sellers in my office today. And uh, uh-huh. I texted Ryan right away. I called Ryan actually on speakerphone. I'm like, hey, I need some help. So uh, if anybody yeah. doesn't know who these gentlemen are, I, I have people asking me all the time. They're like, man, I can't believe you've only been doing this for three years. But it's not me. It's never been me. It's it's, it's seeking out mentors. It's working with other people that have been doing this a lot longer. And, uh, you know, somebody like yourself who's who's an expert, especially in so many different areas. I feel like almost like you're not even a real estate investor. Like you're leaning towards like a, a data scientist slash like attorney. Some <laughs> it, it goes much deeper than to just, you know, signing some title docs and, and showing somebody a house. So it's like its own business in itself. So if, if you're offering something, what'd you say it was 399 bucks? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine. I've, I've seen a lot of gurus, you know, posting this stuff for 20 and 25,000. Um, that's what I feel like. I feel like the information that, that you possess and that you share, you know, uh, openly, cause you guys have never denied me. You've never declined me and said, Hey, we're just not going to help with that. Everything I've ever reached out to you and asked you for, um, the information's been there. So if I could, I can't, there's no way to cover it all, right. It would take probably yeah. months and months to just cover everything nonstop. So for 400 bucks guys, uh, if you're in this space, if you're in, in the, you know, in, in real estate and you're trying to learn and you want to niche down, it sounds like you better get good at it right now with the market changing. Yeah. I'd say, make sure you, you grab um, this link right here or message Logan. We try to get it pulled up right now, but if not, yeah, make sure you reach out, um, grab the information. It's something that you're probably going to have to watch 10 or 20 times. Cause even me being there at the event, <laughs> like, dude, I topped off. I was like, ah, oh, crap, I can't learn anymore. So I was hoping that yeah. be a recording. So I'll make sure I pick it up right away too. But yeah, guys, check it out. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. You're going to have to get a little bit more savvy. You're going to have to learn a little bit more. If you're going to want to stick around in real estate, I promise you we're going to have this uh, conversation again, six months from now, we go live again, 12 months from now. 
and half the wholesalers that you know that are posting every day on Facebook, they're not going to be here anymore. Yeah, you know, they're going to be selling cars or they're going to be in construction. Yeah, that could definitely happen. When things change, we're going to see. Yeah, I noticed even just something simple like in San Antonio when the hell fell, when they, we had those hell storms, uh, everybody's all of a sudden everybody's a roofer, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to be prepared to change with the times. So no Daniel, I guess, uh, I don't know if he's coming back or not. I don't know where he went, but hey, there he is. you get that link I just sent you? Uh, hold on. I'll make sure it's in the. Yeah. So I we did the, you, you want to tell us what's involved in that curative title class? I can do a brief recap, but you can uh, um, tell us better. What is everything that people can expect to find in that link when they make that purchase? You went over, so get, you went over all kinds of stuff. Yeah, man. God, I can't remember. I'll have to look at the outline, but. Yeah. Um, we did go over easements. We went over specific performance lawsuits. Some of those aren't necessarily curative title work, but it mm -hmm. kind of falls in the resolving problems. Um, we talked about landlock property. Um, I talked about resolving judgments and liens. There's about 10 different kinds of judgment liens we talked about there. Um, we talked about some HOA um, liens. Those are a little bit more specific and unique. Um, we talked about breaks in the title chain, orphaned and unresolved for estates, unresolved estates. Those were some good ones. I had a couple of attorneys spend some time talking about those because there's a lot of a lot of technical stuff that needed to be um, part of that. So there's two attorneys there. Um, and then we had some pretty good interviews with folks that are actually really formidable real estate investors. That was something I was excited about. We had some great people there. Um, and what they were adding, I thought was huge because they've got tons of experience. And since this, I would call it discipline, doesn't really have a rule book. It's kind of just a lot of folks figuring out how to do messed up deals. Each person looked at it completely, completely different way. So we had some really impressive operators that had some great advice throughout the, um, throughout the presentation as well. Badass event, dude. Hard to imagine that was your first event. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was really good, dude. That was amazing. That was a good day. The show is sponsored by The List Guys. Do you need more leads in your local or virtual market? One in 10 small businesses don't invest in any kind of marketing. The list guys have over 35 plus list types to choose from and you can mix and match any list or criteria. We also use the skip trace list and provide up to seven numbers and email addresses. Every list you purchase will be scrubbed against previous purchases. The list guys are here to save you time. Contact the list guys today at www.1listguys.com. That's www.the1listguys.com. So uh, I, I guess that's it for this one, man. I would love to do this again, but thank you. Yeah. Um, we appreciate you coming on here and hanging out with you and spending some time together. I'll keep on sending you deals as they come across uh, my desk. And, uh, look forward to it. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you soon, man. Thank you so much. All right, dude. I'll see you. Later, man. Thank you. Hey.